The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, March 26th. In today's news, the Senate unanimously passes its $2 trillion stimulus bill. Soldiers around the world mobilize to enforce lockdowns. And more states order residents to stay home. But first, the big idea. Hospitals from coast to coast are seriously considering universal do-not-resuscitate orders for coronavirus patients. Doctors on the front lines of the pandemic are engaged in heated private debates over a calculation none of them have encountered in their lifetimes. How to weigh the save-at-all-costs approach to resuscitating a dying person against the very real danger of exposing doctors and nurses to the contagion. The conversations are driven by the realization that the risk to staff amid dwindling stores of protective equipment, such as masks, gowns, and gloves, may be too great to justify the conventional response when a patient codes. That's the medical term for when their heart or breathing stops. Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago has been discussing a do-not-resuscitate policy for infected patients regardless of the wishes of the patient or their family members. That's a wrenching decision to prioritize the lives of the many over the one. The new protocols are part of a larger rationing of life-saving procedures and equipment, including ventilators, that's quickly becoming a reality here in America as we've already seen in other parts of the world battling the virus. Officials at George Washington University Hospital here in the district say they've had similar conversations, but for now they'll continue to resuscitate COVID-19 patients using modified procedures. One of them is putting plastic sheeting over a patient to create a barrier as they try to save lives. The University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle, one of the country's major hotspots for infections, is dealing with this problem by severely limiting the number of responders to a contagious patient in cardiac or respiratory arrest who are allowed into the room. Several large hospital systems, Atrium Health in the Carolinas, Geisinger in Pennsylvania, and the regional Kaiser Permanente networks, including in California, are looking at guidelines that would allow doctors to override the wishes of coronavirus patients and their family members on a case-by-case basis due to the risk to doctors and nurses or because of a shortage of protective equipment. But these systems would stop short of imposing the do-not-resuscitate order on every patient. Meanwhile, some healthcare workers are resisting orders to work without adequate protection. To do so, they must buck the all-hands-on-deck ethos that has sprung up during the pandemic and the medical tradition of accepting elevated risk in a crisis— not to mention the threat of serious discipline from their employers. Confrontations and difficult personal decisions are occurring in medical centers across the country as hospital administrators enforce the rationing of masks, face shields, and other equipments for workers worried about protecting themselves. These workers are worried about infecting their spouses and their kids and their parents. Labor unions for doctors and nurses have noted that in China, where supplies were more plentiful, Healthcare workers were told to double up on gowns and other protective equipment. They're warning of a catastrophe if healthcare workers fall ill 
by using the same equipment over and over again with multiple patients. At one hospital in New York City yesterday, 13 people died during what a doctor likened to an apocalyptic surge. Dr. Ashley Bray performed chest compressions at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens on a woman in her 80s, a man in his 60s, and a 38-year-old who reminded the doctor of her fiancé. They all tested positive for the coronavirus. They all went into cardiac arrest when their lungs stopped working, and they all died. Some have died inside the emergency room while still waiting for a bed. A refrigerated truck has been parked outside the hospital to hold the bodies of the dead. One of the people the coronavirus took from us yesterday was a Brooklyn rabbi who once rescued 56 families from the Nazis. Just two months ago, an emotional rabbi, Romy Cohn, stood before Congress and delivered the opening prayer on the day that marked 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. I featured his prayer in the Daily 202 at the time. Now he's gone. He was 91. A medical worker at another New York hospital where nurses are wearing trash bags as protection because they don't have the supplies they need also died yesterday of the coronavirus. New York University's medical school is offering its senior students the chance to graduate early so they can go to the area hospitals and help combat the pandemic. New York City morgues are near capacity, DHS warned in a private bulletin that leaked out. Here in D.C., our city is opening up emergency child care centers for the children of healthcare workers. Washington's National Cathedral yesterday found 5,000 medical masks stored in its crypt. The masks are being donated to aerial hospitals who are running out. We now have 66,000 confirmed cases nationwide and 942 deaths. Globally, we're likely to cross the half million mark for confirmed cases in the next few hours, and we have more than 21,000 confirmed dead. Privately, a lot of doctors and nurses are telling us that the virus is actually killing more Americans than we probably know. In the American system, state and county authorities are responsible for collecting data on cases and deaths. That data is then reported to the CDC, but sometimes, in fact, Often, it's mislabeled. One ER doc in California says he personally knows of three deaths in a county where only one has been reported, for example. As we face the doctor shortage because medical workers are being forced to self-quarantine after exposure, the U.S. military is failing to utilize skilled immigrant physicians who are desperate to help. Dozens of immigrant doctors who are enlisted through a Pentagon program meant to harness their medical skills, are stuck taking out trash and filling out paperwork, even as the military seeks American-born doctors to fight the pandemic. We spoke with six recruits who have relevant training, a pulmonary specialist, an epidemiologist, and two internal medicine practitioners, among others. They're frustrated that the glacial pace of security checks has slowed their chance to serve our country at this crucial moment. Frankly, it's unclear whether our military has enough doctors to treat our own troops and their family members during this pandemic, let alone surge into the private system. The Pentagon's top health official warned yesterday that the military health system is facing a surge in demand. More than 250 service members have now been infected. An internal medicine specialist, a doctor from India who specializes in respiratory illnesses, said he's treated at least 40 patients with the coronavirus at the New York City hospital where he works. He enlisted in the Army Reserves in 2015, 
but he's mostly sat around as a low-ranking soldier on drill weekends with little to do. These physicians enlisted in an immigrant recruitment program that traded fast-track citizenship for skills the Pentagon identified as vital to national security, but in short supply among U.S.-born troops. More than 10,000 skilled immigrants signed up for the program. But then President Trump shuttered it in 2017 amid security concerns about foreigners in our ranks. An internal medicine specialist in Louisiana who said he's treated nearly two dozen coronavirus patients this week alone where he works has faced similar hurdles. He enlisted in 2016 and he actually was naturalized. He's now a U.S. citizen. But he was given an unfavorable determination because he often speaks to his foreign-born father. So when he does reserve duty, he's doing trash removal, the kind of stuff junior soldiers do, not physicians. A Chinese epidemiologist in California echoed the same sentiment. He enlisted in 2016 and has also become a naturalized citizen, but he's yet to move forward as an officer. He spends his reserve time cleaning facilities as a cook. He has skills and can help. He says he feels useless. These folks spoke to us on the condition we not use their names for fear of retaliation. The Pentagon didn't respond to our request for comment. Meanwhile, the federal government says that more than 140 nursing homes now have confirmed cases of the coronavirus, but officials refuse to tell us which ones. And unprotected and unprepared home health aides who care for the elderly are bracing for the worst. At least 12 million people in the United States depend on such services every year, many of them older or coping with severe disabilities. Many who require medical services or help with the basic tasks of daily living are likely to be confined to their homes in the weeks and months ahead. Yet the providers of those services say they're unprepared to step into the breach. They're hamstrung by regulations ill-suited to the pandemic and unable to access protective gear that could shield them and their clients from infection. And some cancer patients are also facing delayed surgeries and scaled back treatments because the coronavirus crush has stretched our system past its breaking point. Cancer will be diagnosed in an estimated 1.8 million Americans this year. More than 600,000 of our fellow Americans will die from cancer this year. Now, with the virus racing through the country, cancer doctors and patients are taking sometimes drastic steps to try to deal with the crisis. The changes range from the simple to the complex. At the NYU Langone Medical Center, for example, cancer patients are being directed to separate elevators to reduce their chance of being exposed to the coronavirus. Nationwide, oncologists are delaying some surgeries and paring back treatments to reduce patients' time in the hospital and their risk of infection. Cancer-fighting pills taken at home are being substituted for IV therapies administered at hospitals and clinics. With blood donations falling sharply, doctors are switching to regimens that require fewer transfusions. Give blood if you can. In many places, clinical trials, the last hope of many desperately ill patients, are being closed off to new participants. And as if we don't have enough to worry about, a man who plotted to bomb a Missouri hospital because of the coronavirus crisis was killed during a shooting this week after he went to pick up what he thought was a vehicle rigged with explosives, not knowing that he was doing so, thank God, as the FBI looked on. 
The FBI says Timothy Wilson, 36, was the subject of a month-long domestic terrorism investigation, which revealed him to be a potentially violent extremist motivated by racial, religious, and anti-government animus. Authorities say Wilson planned to commit a bombing and because of the pandemic, decided to accelerate his plan to use a vehicle bomb to attack a hospital. How sick is that? Authorities were apparently prepared to take him into custody when he came to pick up what he thought was a bomb-laden vehicle in Belton, Missouri. The FBI described what happened next as an agent-involved shooting, but declines to say whether Wilson was shot by an agent or someone else or whether he killed himself. Wilson had considered targeting a school with a large population of African-American students, a mosque, and a synagogue before ultimately settling on the hospital. This news comes at a time when counterterror experts are warning of a growing threat from neo-Nazi extremists who adhere to something called accelerationism. This is a hyper-violent doctrine among the far right, seeking to hasten the collapse of society through terrorist acts. These anarchists are discussing using the global pandemic to spur the disintegration of vulnerable governments who are trying to deal with the crisis. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one. Lawmakers acted with unusual speed to produce the largest economic rescue package in U.S. history. The sprawling legislation, which passed late last night, 96 to 0, would send checks to more than 150 million American households, set up enormous loan programs for businesses large and small, pump billions into unemployment insurance programs, greatly boost spending on hospitals, and much more. The Senate vote sends the bill to the House, where Majority Leader Steny Hoyer announced a vote to approve it for Friday morning. Trump says he'll sign it immediately. But in a fresh reminder of the dangers reaching into the Capitol itself, a spokesman for John Thune, the Republican from South Dakota, he's the number two in GOP leadership, announced just minutes before last night's vote that Thune was flying back to South Dakota on a private plane to self-quarantine because he's feeling unwell. Thune was one of four senators who were absent for the vote. The other three absences were also due to the coronavirus. Rand Paul, who's tested positive, and Mike Lee and Mitt Romney, both from Utah, who self-quarantined because of their contact with Paul. Number two, in every region of the world, under all kinds of political systems, governments are turning to increasingly stringent measures and deploying their armed forces to back them up. Countries as varied as China, Jordan, El Salvador, and Italy have deployed massive numbers of troops into the streets. Guatemala has detained more than a thousand people for not complying with stay-at-home orders. In Peru, those who flout government restrictions can be jailed for up to three years. In Saudi Arabia, it's five. At no time since World War II have so many nations wrestled with what it means to be in a state of emergency and how to impose fundamental and sudden changes in human behavior. Deploying troops is a startling but often, frankly, effective way to keep people indoors. But its impact could ripple well beyond the end of the coronavirus, and the end will come. As countries decide when and if to cede the powers that the global pandemic endowed them. In Lebanon, Chile, and Hong Kong, beset for months by protests, fear of the coronavirus has allowed the state to ban public gatherings without overtly violating civil liberties. In several countries, leaders have used the public health crisis to suppress freedom of speech and other constitutional protections. 
Rwandan police fatally shot two men yesterday who they said defied the lockdown. In Russia, where remember Vladimir Putin continues to pretend like the coronavirus isn't a problem even though it is, facial surveillance and the threat of prison time are being used to keep people in their homes. Russia has pulled some tools from its authoritarian toolbox to battle the disease, including the use of facial recognition artificial intelligence technology to track people who have been ordered into self-isolation. The Kremlin is also developing a system using geolocation data from mobile phones to monitor individuals. Teams of police and doctors have been conducting raids on hotels, student dormitories, and apartments to track people who traveled from China to Russia before the border closure. They're detaining some of them, reportedly. In Moscow, authorities announced that they're going to monitor anyone who came into the country from outside Russia with the city's more than 178,000 facial recognition cameras. And they said anyone not following guidelines could be arrested. This is Brave New World stuff. Number three, as the crisis deepens back here in the United States in New York, experts are split over how to contain its spread into new areas of our country. The ongoing debate over whether it's practical for the federal government or individual states to issue guidance that restricts the movement of Americans based on where they've recently been is only going to intensify in the coming weeks. Minnesota Governor Tim Walz, a Democrat, issued an executive order yesterday asking residents of my home state to stay in their homes unless absolutely necessary. Idaho Governor Brad Little, a Republican, ordered residents in his state to stay mostly at home for the next 21 days. New Orleans announced that it is on track to become the next epicenter. Authorities are warning that the number of cases in the city could overwhelm its hospitals by April 4th. The coronavirus is popping up everywhere. Even Guantanamo Bay reported its first case yesterday. And all Mormon temples, not just in Utah, but around the world, will close down starting today. The head of the church said in a letter overnight to his flock of 16.3 million. The Tony Awards have also been postponed. But in keeping with my goal to finish this podcast on a positive note during these dark, dark, dark days, there's one shortage that's emerged in the last few days that might actually be welcome. New York City is running out of pets for people to foster. The shelters are thinning. There's been a tenfold surge of applications in the last two weeks to adopt or foster pets. People who are lonely, isolated, depressed, and stuck at home, especially single folks, have decided to adopt dogs and cats to keep them company. And now those dogs and cats won't be put down. We'll take what we can get. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, March 26th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.